Take your Bibles to Genesis 24 for this morning's scripture reading. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But I will go to my... But go will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife from my, for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of the evening and the time when the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let your jar down that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one who you have appointed to your, for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have swore, shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished Finish speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden who had, whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord, and he and she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all the, his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She told him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom bore, she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder, the room and a room to spend the night. The man said, Blessed be the God of of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. 
Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out towards the man so to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelet on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. So Abraham's servant said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master whom she, when she was old, and to him she has, he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord whom I have walked, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan, and if they will not give her to you, you shall be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arm. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your son, your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And the men who were with him ate and drank, and they went spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us well, a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. 
They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on camels and followed the men. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward the evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant took told Isaac all things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Father, it's with a, a sober heart that I come before you now, uh, prepared to open your word and, and teach. Father, I'm not sure that there's anything more countercultural that we do than when we gather together to open your word and to listen. Father, I pray that's what we'll do this morning, that our hearts will listen, that we will be informed by what you have said, what you have given to your apostles and your prophets to echo by your commands and instructions, and that great suffering in our lives will be spared because of it. I thank you for your word. It has never failed me. Father, by faith, it will not fail those who trust in it today. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. While you're turning, I'll thank Marty for reading that passage. It's not every day that the pastor asks you to stand up and read 60-some verses in front of everyone, but that was my doing and not Marty's, so I want to thank him for doing it and being faithful to it. Uh, it's one of the most uh, beautiful stories in the Bible to me, Genesis chapter 24. I uh, want to get to heaven someday and find... Isaac, and I want to ask him what he was meditating on in the field that night when he looked up and he saw Rebecca coming. I have a suspicion that he was meditating on the loss of his mother and his own future and how he would proceed to carry out God's plan without a wife. I have a suspicion that he was prayerfully considering these things before God and and he looked up, and there was God's reply. Uh, anyway, thank you, Marty, for reading that. Let's read now the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul writes, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. 
Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And that's as far as we'll go. I feel like I am on a repeating record when I say that not an oft-taught passage uh, in the Bible on uh, Sunday mornings. However, I say with all confidence, it should be far more broadly taught than it is. I am not sure that there is a more destructive element that has taken place in our world today than the breaking down of the family in the name of economic success and opportunity, whether for races, peoples, genders, etc. Uh, there's a, a, a solid principle of political thinking that, that embraces the idea there are no policies that solve problems. There are lots of problems. And there are lots of things that we can do about problems. But policies do not solve problems. Policies simply negotiate an exchange whereby you trade something in the hopes of alleviating something else. And like any trade or exchange, you might end up better off than you were or you might end up far worse. Something of an exchange was made uh, in the middle of the 20th century. Um, it took many different shapes and forms. But the basic idea is that people, women, races, individuals, even children, were being deprived key opportunities because they were not given sexual freedom and sexual education. There were not mechanisms in place to encourage their sexuality in a way that would control the outcome. In 1946, an activist by the name of Chisholm stood up before the World Health Organization. 1946, mind you, on the heels of World War II. Long before the 60s and the 70s, and declared to the World Health Organization that parents were basically tyrants who were complicit in the oppression of women by teaching a more familial, and conservative view of sexual ethics. Over the course of the next 15 or 20 years, advocacy groups begin to arise, teaching the great freedom and prosperity that would come on the heels of the sexual revolution, which they were calling for. This reached the presidential levels in the 1960s. 
with Lyndon Johnson standing up and saying that a lack of family planning was one of the four greatest threats that faced our country in the 1960s. I'm old enough to remember uh, George W. Bush's famous uh, presidential address, the State of the Union, when he stood up and he said that there was an axis of evil, which I think was Iran, North Korea, and Russia, if I'm remembering it correctly. And that raised a lot of eyebrows. Lyndon Johnson said, in effect, in the 1960s, that there was a, a four-headed monster that was threatening our country, and that was a lack of family planning. Let's give way to presidential policies that would encourage the rampant distribution of birth control, the rampant expansion of abortion, the legalization of abortion, and sexual education in public schools, all in the name of transforming education about sexuality from a family discussion into a public discussion for the economic good of the nation. And here we are some 60 years later. How has our exchange gone? In 1960, 60% of the population between the ages of 20 to 24, 60% of 20 to 24 year olds were married. 1960. In 2010, census data from this study, the same group was 14%, a 46% drop between the ages of 20 and 24. Now, what is happening when you see a 46% drop between the ages of 20 and 24 in the rate of those who are married? Are we to presume that sexual activity has also fallen off a cliff over the course of that 60 years? Of course not. In 1970, there were 8 million single-parent homes in the United States. That's a lot. 8 million single-parent homes in 1970. 30 years later, in 2000, there were 20 million single-parent homes. More than two and a half times households? The Atlantic, which is not a conservative news outlet, by far, leaning as far left as you can lean and be a media outlet, wrote an article in 2014 in which they write in their own words, not quoting a study, but simply summarizing a study. The single strongest predictor of a child's economic fortunes is the fraction of single parents in the area where he or she grew up. The single strongest predictor of a child's future economic fortunes is not how good the grades were in the school that they went, is not how loving their parent was, or even parents, is not whether they were white, black, or any other color. 
the single greatest predictor of their future economic fortune was, and this is very interesting, the fraction or the ratio of single parents in the area where they grew up. What does that say? It means that a child who grows up in a community where the expectation exists that people will be married and have children and stay married, a child who grows up in that community, whether their own parents are married or not, is partaking in the single greatest advantage they could possibly have for their economic future. And a child who grows up in a community where the community standard is that parents will not stay married or even get married, and that children will be raised in single households, that's the community norm, that is the single strongest disadvantage. They go on to quote more specifically, Children of married parents have a much better chance even in a single-parent community. So the outliers in a single-parent community are the ones whose parents are married and teach them countercultural ideas in the community. Now, why am I going into all this? Because I want to hurt people? or make people feel guilty, or make people feel bad. Absolutely not. But there is no coincidence that as the general population has rejected the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ and has moved away from a community centered around the church and has embraced an idea of sexual liberation without consequence as the ideal and the norm, there is no coincidence that we have a preponderance of human suffering economically, personally, relationally, the age of people being married has continued to climb. Now, even if you reach into the age bracket of 25 to 34, whereas in 1960, 82% of the population between ages 25 and 34 were married, 82%. In 2010, it was less than 45%. And so from a policy perspective, we've made a trade we have decided to exchange the safety and security and the well-being that comes with a biblical sexual ethic for a do-whatever-you-want attitude as long as you can reasonably escape consequence and you will have more economic opportunity. And it has been perhaps the worst policy trade in the history of our country because the statistics do not bear it out. Just as family planning in the form of Planned Parenthood and their abortion agenda did not alleviate the economic burden on communities, but instead exacerbated the economic burden on communities, so has 
all of the rest of their sexual liberation ideals. No burdens have been alleviated. The problems that existed in the 1960s exist right now. And we have invited a cacophony of problems on top of them to boot. The diseases that were prevalent in the 80s and the 90s that before our nation had never dealt with can be pinned towards a sexual liberation where no longer does it have any permanence to it anymore. But those people who suffered and died from those diseases were victims of an ideology that you could engage in that sort of behavior without consequence. They were dumb enough, gullible enough to believe the people that they should have been able to trust. Leaders, teachers, parents, friends, and they got burned. Today, the economic disparity that takes place all across our country in communities where you can't find a mother and a father in the home in one out of ten houses is another sort of burning by people who have believed what they were told, embraced sexual immorality, and now are left with consequence. Romans 12 describes it this way. Romans 1. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Verse 24, God then therefore gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their flesh to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, and if ever there was a country who knew what God had to say about these things, it was ours. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Proclaiming to be wise, they became fools. Only a fool 
would look at the situation that we're at in America today and think this was a good exchange. Only a fool. But that's what they do. Now, the Bible is clear that we should restrain ourselves until marriage from sexual activity. The Bible is clear that marriage should be built around loving sacrifice towards one another in every facet. The Bible is clear that God hates divorce. The Bible is clear in the wisdom of raising children in the proper context. And when you look out at the world and you don't understand how people can behave the way that they behave and do the things that they do and say the things that they say and act the way that they act, look no further than the home they were raised in, the community they were raised in, the school that they went to, the lies that they believed. What you believe about the world matters. It matters. What you believe about life and freedom and behavior matters. And it doesn't just matter in a personal context. It matters in the larger community. It matters. Now, Paul has been asked by the Corinthians about some very personal things. We know this because verse 1 of chapter 7 says, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me, They've asked some questions. And Paul's response here in 1 Corinthians 7 is not supposed to be a comprehensive statement on any of these topics. He's simply doing a remote Q&A. <laughs> you ask the questions, here are the answers. And I will try to be as discreet and as understanding towards you know, young ears um, as, I, as I can be. And I think we can do that without going into details and specifics. But Paul is going to teach some very important principles here. Some ones that we ought to consider. And so five points this morning, down from seven last week, which is good. That just means I get to have Marty read 60-some verses. So we're going to go fast. Point number one comes in verse one. Celibacy is good. He writes, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, in the ancient Greek world, there was a question about whether or not celibacy was superior spiritually towards having a wife and a family. Whether or not the ability to restrain yourself was superior. That was a legitimate question. And many of the ancient religions taught that those on the highest plane were those who could maintain personal celibacy. We even see remnants of that in the world today where... You know, you have traditions like the Catholic faith and all the priests have to be celibate. And you don't have to look very far to see the fallout of that in the practice of, of those traditions. But Paul is saying, look, celibacy is good. In other words, it's not bad. It's not a lesser calling or a greater calling. Matter of fact, if this is point one, I would make point A down in verse seven. Look where it says in verse seven. For I wish that all men were even as myself. Now, Paul was celibate. He didn't have a wife. I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God. In other words, if you're able to be celibate and self-controlled and not burn with passions and lusts and desires, 
That's a gift. That's great. That's good. That's fine. But if you have desires and strong desires for a husband or a wife, that's okay too. There's, each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. That's verse 7. Jesus says much the same thing in Matthew 19, verses 11 and 12. Jesus is teaching and he says some very difficult things about divorce and his disciples, gives you the framework from which they're approaching the topic, say, if what you say about divorce is true, it's better that nobody ever get married, right? <laughs> that's not a very strong opinion of, of marriage, is it? But that's what they said and I'm just going to say that maybe just a few of them said that. Maybe, maybe some of those disciples had a little bit more common sense. But, and Jesus said to them, hey, not everybody can handle that. <laughs> you know? So, point number one, Paul is acknowledging. He must have been asked, hey, should we all strive to be celibate? Would that make us better people? And, and he's saying here, point number one, celibacy is good if you can do it, if that's a gift from God that you have, but... But it's not superior. <laughs> it may provide its own unique advantages. You don't have to concern yourself with providing for a household and managing the tasks. Because those of us with kids know that's work. And it takes time. Right, Tim and Lydia? It takes time having, having little, uh, little babies, doesn't it? It does. I don't know why I pick on Tim, but it's, it's hard. It's not easy. So celibacy is good. But so is marriage. And he goes on in verse 2, point number 2 here. Let's, let's read the verse first. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. In other words, the phrase because of sexual immorality indicates, point number 2, sexual immorality is a sinful temptation that exploits good design. I'll say it again. Sexual immorality is a sinful temptation that exploits good design. Men and women are designed to be together. God created Adam and Eve. He put them together with a purpose before sin. It's good design. There's nothing bad about human design when it comes to, to a husband desiring a wife, a wife desiring a husband. But sexual immorality is a sinful temptation that exploits good design. It promises gratification and fulfillment in a way that's outside of what was designed, which is in the context of marriage, a devoted relationship. Point number one, celibacy is good. Point number two, sexual morality is a sinful temptation that exploits good design. So he's saying in verse two, let a husband have his own wife and a wife have her own husband. Now you might notice the symmetry of that, which you should key on for verse 3. He doesn't just say, look, you know, men are dogs and they have all sorts of temptations, so let them go find wives. He doesn't do that. He plays from both sides of the gender aisle. Let a husband have his own wife. Let a wife have her own husband. Verse 3 let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. Do you see again the symmetry of it? Both sides. Now that may not seem unique to you and I, but it was really unique in the ancient world. Because in the ancient world, uh, the pagan cultures thought women were just along for the ride. Um, women could not 
divorce a man. They could run away, but men were the only ones with that power, and men were the ones who arranged marriages, and women, especially in the Roman world, were little more than elevated property. If they were wives, if they were concubines, less than that. So when Paul is writing in the context of the first century and he is giving due privilege and authority to both the husband and the wife in the course of a marriage relationship, this is a significant thing. And the Bible often is criticized today for being an oppressive book against women. No fair-minded person can read this text and interpret oppression. However, in this text, a woman is oppressed, a man is oppressed to the same degree because they're both given the same rights. Now, verse 3 has been used to justify all sorts of evil behavior. What it basically says is that when a man marries a woman and a woman marries a man, they are giving themselves wholly to the other person. Because of that, giving themselves wholly to another person, and again, I'm, I'm being mindful of young years, but because of that, there are certain intimacies that are owed to the other individual. That's part of giving yourself wholly as, a part, as opposed to partially giving yourself. And so Paul's instruction is, let the husband render to his wife, and the wording here is, is really interesting. It says, affection do her. The word do means owed, owed, do. Owed because in marriage you have wholly given yourself to the other person. But the word affection is interesting. Literally, it's the idea of kindness or benevolence. And the fact that a verse like this has been manipulated by people who are unable to control their own desires and would try to force their husband or wife into behavior that, that they're not comfortable with, or forcefully take what is owed in the context of marriage, is just ridiculous, and there's no license to do that in the verse. No reasonably-minded person would ever consider that kindness or affection. But you know what happens? People with an agenda read a verse like this in the Bible, and they say, look at how oppressive this is to women. And look at how much evil has been done to women because of this verse. Let me just pause there. If you want to see the mistreatment of women, you don't need to be in a culture that has a Bible. Women have been abused as the weaker vessel since the dawn of time. In every culture, among every people. You cannot lay the abuse of women at the feet of God's word. There is no license to be abusive towards a wife in this text. What does it say? It says what we know. It says what we pledge at our own weddings. That one person is giving themselves to another. That there is intimacy and affection owed in that giving. But in all the scripture, now think about this, there is no framework that justifies a man or a woman to go and forcefully take something that is owed to them by another individual. If I loan my neighbor 50 bucks, or if he just comes into my house and takes it without my knowledge, does he owe me the money back? Yes. 
Does the Bible give me license to go break down his door with the baseball bat and to beat him senseless until I have it back from him? Of course not. Why? Because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and love your neighbor and love your enemy. And there is no license for anyone in any relationship. Forcefully taking something that they should have that's being withheld. So why in the world would anyone assume that that's what this verse is trying to give someone license to do in the context of a loving marriage? Of course, they wouldn't. That's ridiculous. What Paul is saying is, no one person in a marriage relationship should deprive the other partner whom they've committed themselves from of the kindness of intimacy. It shouldn't happen. But if and when it does... What's the other person supposed to do? I'll tell you. Are you ready? This is going to be shocking stuff. Ready? Behave like a Christian and love their spouse. I mean, my wife shouldn't curse me out when I walk in the door. And she doesn't, by the way. But she shouldn't. It shouldn't happen. But if she does, how am I supposed to behave? Like a Christian and love my wife. That's what I'm supposed to do. You know, when you read the text and you think about the text and you acknowledge the command that a husband lay down his life in loving service to his wife and then you hear how people who themselves have read the text and want to use it to lambast the Bible and God's word as some abusive book giving license to mistreat people, you get a hint of the deception that's going on. Point number three, intimacy is a kindness owed. Intimacy is a kindness owed. And I would add the caveat, I've got it starred here in my notes, owed but never to be taken. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body. Oh my gosh, what an oppressive book towards women that we have. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do you see the symmetry? What is he saying? What is this radical teaching? The radical teaching is that when I promised myself to my wife, I gave her joint ownership of all that I have, including myself. I gave her claim to me. I gave her authority. I gave her say. Now, this is a book written in the first century. Again, how many Religious books you think are floating around in the first century that give a wife equal ownership in a marriage even over her own husband's life. This is not an oppressive, abusive text. Point number four, marriage is joint ownership given away. 
Ladies, if you do not want a man to have a say over your life and your body, don't marry one. Men, if you don't want a wife to have a say over your body and your life, don't marry one. But when you marry, two flesh are becoming one. You are giving joint ownership over all that you possess in this world, including your own body, to another human being. That is a precious thing. As a side note, I always shake my head when I hear about a man marrying a woman and we're going to keep all of our bank accounts separate and we're going to keep all of our finances separate and all of our debts separate and we're going to... And I think, (laughs) that's not going to (laughs) work. That's not going to work. If you can't wrap your head around opening up your bank account to your spouse, there are going to be a lot more intimate problems for sure. Verse 5, do not deprive one another. And this is Paul dealing with the questions, again, about celibacy, about abstaining. Should we... Do not deprive one another except with consent. Consent from who? From the pastor? No, no, don't come to me and ask about that, okay? Uh, no, from your spouse. <laughs> because they have authority over, over your life that you're supposed to discuss this with, right? So do not deprive one another except, for, except with consent for a time so that you can give yourselves to prayer and fasting. You can tell that's what they're asking about. And then come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And then verse 6, here's the follow-up. But this I say as a concession, not a command. In other words, Paul is not telling any married couple to deprive one another for any length of time. But he will concede Maybe if you both agree to do this for a short period of time so that you can focus on your relationship with the Lord, just don't make it a long time and come back together because temptation and self-control are going to be an issue. So I'll concede that form of celibacy in a marriage for a short agreed-upon time for a very specific purpose might be okay, but it's not a command. I'm not telling anybody to do that. Does it sound like Paul is encouraging that? It doesn't. He's not. But he's answering a question honestly. He's not condemning a husband and a wife who agree to that. But he's going to warn them. Be careful. Verse 7, we've already covered, but we'll read it again. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God. What a, what a beautiful thing for Paul to say. And acknowledge. There's no pride in that, right? I wish that, you know, for the sake of the ministry, for the sake of the gospel, that that people were free from a kind of controlling sexual temptation. But everyone has their own gift. And being designed for a spouse is no curse. <laughs> Each one has their own gift from God. One in this manner, another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, 
let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now understand a couple things here. Number one, you are expected to exercise self-control in your conduct. This is not licensed to say, well, I can't control myself. No, no. You are not an animal. And if you're a parent, you're not raising animals. You had better raise your children with the expectation that they will control their behavior. He's not talking about if you can't control your behavior and you just have to go sleep with this person, sleep with that person. That's not what he's saying. No. The, the, the disconcerting danger is the idea of burning with passion at the end of the verse. If you cannot exercise self-control, but instead you are dealing with internal lust, then it's better to marry than to deal with that. Jesus uses the idea of internal lust to condemn everyone as an adulterer in need of salvation, right? Whoever has looked after a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery. If you cannot control the internal mechanism, it's better to marry than to wrestle with, with lust and lustful thoughts all the time. That's what he's saying. He's not saying it's better to marry than to just go sleep around with everybody. Obviously it is, but you are expected to exercise self-control in that department. Where it's more challenging is the thoughts that just come bang to your mind. And if you're not wired to control yourself there, it's better to marry than to deal with that your whole lifetime. So point number five, self-control is always the expectation. Let me go through those one more time with you. Point number one, celibacy is good. It's not superior, but it's not evil. It's good, it's fine. Point number two, Sexual immorality is a sinful temptation that exploits good design. Point number three. Intimacy is a kindness and it's owed to your spouse. Point number four. Marriage is joint ownership given away. Beware, go in with eyes wide open. Point number five. Self-control is always the expectation. I uh, listened to John MacArthur do a teaching on this one time. It was a recorded teaching. I wasn't there in person. Would have been uncomfortable to be there in person. Maybe it's been uncomfortable for you to be here in person this morning. But this would have been more uncomfortable because he said, and there are young men and young women all around this congregation who want to get married and some of you need to quit being lazy and propose to marry some of these people. <laughs> now, that would have been an uncomfortable sermon to be a young man sitting in the middle of, you know, in the, go to church one Sunday and here the pastor from the pulpit is trying to say, hey, quit dragging your feet and get married, you know? But my own version of that will be to say this. If you are willing to be led around by the nose of the culture in what to look for in a spouse, then you are not approaching marriage from a position of faith. You're approaching it from the position of a fool. And uh, because the world, has the world has proven themselves to be foolish on this front. And in every scenario, the world has proven They've raised their hands and said, we don't know what we're talking about. Um, 
So if you are gonna have an idealistic view of what your husband or wife should look like and strive for a mark that is not set by God as opposed to striving for someone who loves the Lord and who is willing to devote themselves to you. Let me tell you something. If you don't have the humility to appreciate that, I don't know what to tell to you. I don't know what to say to you. Because there is no one in this room worthy of the devotion of a husband or a wife. Nobody is that good. It's crazy to me that you have two different people who want to get married and someone is willing to devote themselves to the other and the other person says, eh, you should at least be humbled by that. But if you find that God has given you a partner in marriage and you know you are wired to pursue marriage and this is a good and acceptable partner to the Lord, just have some, have some faith for crying out loud. Have some faith. The world has preached a scare message on all this. Don't, don't be scared by the world. Be equally yoked. Marry a believer. Be a believer. Be committed to the Lord. Embrace Christian accountability, right? But don't be scared by the world and their principles. You know, I went through college with a spouse. My wife, going through college now with a spouse. We know what it is to have no money. <laughs> And by God's grace, we know what it is to have a little. Uh, we went through difficult, trying times, figuring out how to be an adult. And we did okay. Why? Because we're just great people, Allison? No, because we love the Lord. We are part of a Christian community with accountability. We were not going to throw that away. And... We were devoted to each other. Whatever the cost was. We were both willing to be hurt by each other. We were both willing to experience those first little betrayals of trust and confidence that come with marriage and money and kids and decisions, etc. And forgive and love each other. If you want to be a fool and suffer the consequence of it, listen to the world when it comes to this stuff. It is on display all around. Otherwise, behave honorably, trust the Lord, and marry in faith. And that's why I asked Marty to read that passage of Isaac. First of all, Isaac's a great testimony of self-control. You know, he was 40 years old when he married Rebecca. 40 years old. Um, and you know, when, when Isaac saw Rebecca, it was the first time he'd ever seen Rebecca. And she was wearing a veil, and it was nighttime. That's faith. That's faith. <laughs> Either you're going to live your life trusting the Lord, or you're going to live your life under the fear and dread that the world will place upon you. You know, I'm not saying just foolishly rush out into something, but I'm saying live your life by faith, by faith. And trust God with, with the consequence, with the result. Don't live your life in some sort of petrified, you know, I have to have everything perfect in all my... Live your life in faith. Don't let yourself burn with passion and lust and desire. And don't become a slave to sexual sin. And don't throw something precious away because you were too scared to make a commitment in marriage. That's just nuts.
That is just crazy. Anyway, a lot of practical wisdom here. I hope you've been encouraged to live your life by faith this morning. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the blessing of marriage in all of our lives, and I thank you for your design in it. Father, I pray that we'll be good stewards of marriage as an ordinance from, from you, that as a community that we will consider the accountability of the body of Christ important in marriage and in marriage relationships, that we'll be people who live by faith, that we'll be motivated by love, benevolence, kindness, generosity, and all of our interactions, especially those that are most intimate and personal in our lives, that in no way will we, will we be governed by a lack of self-control or selfish ambitions or personal gratification, but that we will be governed by the self-control that comes from your Holy Spirit. It's a gift from Him. And that we'll behave honorably in our bodies. Father, I pray for those who are struggling with a message like this this morning. I pray for the single people who, who would like to get married and aren't sure how to go about it. I, I pray, Father, for for those who are in relationships and maybe aren't sure where they're leading. Father, I ask that you give them wisdom. I pray, Father, for those who, who feel that their own life has already been a failure in so many of these things. And Father, I pray that you'll assure them of the freedom from any sort of guilt or shame afforded in Jesus Christ and that they will, they will take peace and joy in being loved by you that they won't be scared by statistics or but that they, by faith that they will do the best in the circumstance and condition that they're in. Father, there are just so many avenues of life that a text like this can find us in. So we need to depend upon your spirit to work in our hearts and minds. Assure us of your love for us and the love of others. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.